All right, so we're glad that they're here. We're glad you made it safely in one piece. And we're gonna dig into um, week five of exploring God's word. All right, so just to quickly recap where we've been. We have been hanging out in the Old Testament. And through that, we learned that God was desiring to um, commune and to have a relationship with people. Started with Adam and Eve in the garden. And that communion, that relationship was broken. And then God moved in the lives of righteous men and individuals like um, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Joseph. And then last week we talked about Moses, the deliverer. And we know that God's people, his chosen ones, the children of Israel, they became enslaved in Egypt. And last week we went through all of the plagues and how God used Moses to bring them out of Egypt and how there were many miracles in order to get them there, the, the parting of the Red Sea. And um, we talked a little bit about how God wanted to establish relationship with his people. And so he gave to them the law and the law taught them a lot. It taught them the character of God, the nature of God, because these are people who didn't really know God. They didn't have all the scriptures and they didn't have God manifested in flesh, you know, walking around. They didn't have the spirit inside of them. And so in order to really teach them what was right, he was teaching them the law. And it shows us the very character and the very nature of God. Through the law, we know what God hates. We know what he desires. We know what he loves. We can learn that he's just, that he's loving, that he's kind. We can learn a lot of these things through um, the law that was given. And then we also learned about the temple and how he gave them an established worship and sacrifice in um, the temple. So last week we ended there. We were in the middle of the desert and we were trying to get to the land of promise. Okay. So tonight we're going to be talking about the rest of Israel's journey. Um, and this is going to cover quite a bit of territory. So we're going to just dive right in here. Um, the land of promise is also called the promised land. And it was also like Canaan land. Um, so this was an area that God had told that he would give to the Israelites when they left Egypt. So during the last years of Israel's wandering, God instructed Moses to speak to a rock in order to provide Israel with water. So God told him to speak. And Moses, in his anger at the murmuring of the children of Israel, struck the rock. Therefore, he disobeyed God. And God, in his mercy, did cause water to come forth out of that rock. But because Moses disobeyed God's instruction, remember, God always gives specific instructions, um, Moses was not allowed to enter the promised land. This leader of God's people um, was told that he would not uh, go into the promised land. And you can read about this in Numbers 20. I think those scriptures are on your paper. Um, numbers 20 verses 7 through 12. And if you want to fill in your blanks there, it was nevertheless, the disobedience of Moses kept him from entering the promised land. 
Now, God did allow him to view the promised land from Mount Pisgah. He then died and was buried by the Lord. So that's kind of interesting. Um, After Moses' death, the leadership was passed to a man named Joshua. He was the one that would take Israel into the promised land. Because of unbelief, Israel reaped the judgment of God. And so they were having doubts. They weren't believing that God was going to get them where he had promised them. And so because of this, they would have judgment for their unbelief, and they would wander around in the wilderness for 40 years. That's a long time. Those who did not believe that God would give the land of promise died in the wilderness. They died in their wanderings. But there were two men, Joshua and Caleb, were saved from the judgment on this unbelieving generation because they had faith in God's word and it delivered them from an early grave and put them in the land of promise safely. They trusted God. Joshua and Caleb were the only two persons from the Egyptian exodus who were above the age of 20 at the time of their departure. Okay, so they had seen a lot in their lifetime. But they had great faith in God that God was going to take them into the promised land. So to enter into this land of Canaan, the Israelites had another problem in front of them. And it happens to be water again. And so this time it is not the Red Sea, but it is the Jordan River. So the Israelites had to cross the Jordan River in order to get into the land of Canaan. Now, something very interesting happened here. When the priest stepped into the Jordan River, the waters divided. And so the priest went out into the middle of the Jordan, and they stood there, and they allowed all of Israel to pass over to the other side. Twelve men took twelve stones from the river And they built a memorial to God at Gilgal. This would be a sign and a reminder to future generations of what God had just done for them right there. So it's an important thing and it's good for children, for families, and for friends to be reminded from time to time of the great deliverance that God has given and the good things that he's done for us. So that's what they did. They built a memorial at Gilgal to remember God's deliverance once again. All right, so the Hebrews entered into the promised land, which is a type or a shadow of our possessing the promises of God today. The warfare, the trials, the mountaintop experiences, and the valleys that they faced is a part of living and maturing in God. We cannot escape all of those things. Like the children of Israel, we are going to face trials. We're going to have mountaintop experiences where we feel so near to God. And we're going to have valleys and trials and seasons of hardships. But it's part of living, and we can look at Israel's story, and we can learn so much from it. Israel was delivered from Egypt, which, as, as we talked about last week, is always a type of sinful bondage or the world. So they were delivered out of the world. They were delivered out of the bondage of Egypt. And then Israel's 40 years of wandering is a type of the result of failing to believe and act in the promises of God. We can learn from that. 
when we are not going to act in faith and we're going to operate in unbelief and doubt, it can cause us to stumble. It can cause us to fall, and it can even affect others. Because unbelief in their um, in the nation of Israel caused thousands of people to perish in the wilderness. There was a whole generation, thousands of them, that didn't make it to the promised land that they were trying to get to. Millions of people today are wandering in darkness and unbelief. And we can learn from that experience. We've got to get our, our belief and our trust in alignment with, with the Lord. And we know he's done it. They knew that he could do it. Look how far he had brought them. Look how far they had come. So we got to stand on those promises of God. So all the older people of Israel, except for the two believers, died in the wilderness in their unbelief, while their offspring went with Joshua into the promised land. So a new generation, it took a new generation of faith to get them into the promised land. Well, the promised blessing would belong to Israel only if they would believe and obey the Lord and if they would do their part to take the land. So there was going to be enemies, right? There was going to be um, things and peoples that would stand in their way. So Israel had to fight for the promised land, but God promised that he would fight for them if they believed and they obeyed him. So he miraculously would give them victory after victory. And one of the greatest stories, we can imagine them standing at the city of Jericho, which was this big city with huge fortress of walls. And I can imagine that Jericho was quite confused as they stood there and watched outside of their city walls, this great host of Israel marching around the walls of their city. Have you heard this story? Yeah. So they're marching around the walls of the city, and they marched once each day for six consecutive days in a row, okay? And then on the seventh day, they passed around the city seven times. And at the end of the seventh march on the seventh day, Israel gave a loud shout of praise, and the walls fell down. So God gave Israel victory. Marching around Jericho, I'm sure, probably felt foolish to them. But God will often use foolish things that this world would call foolish to confound or confuse the wise. And so we have to obey the Lord, even when it sounds strange, even when we don't understand it, victory will follow. Let's turn to Hebrews 11.30. This is going to be in your New Testament. Chapter 11, verse 30. All right, it says, By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they were compassed about 
seven days. And so that key word there is faith. Faith is always what the Lord wants from us. He wants us to trust him, to believe that he is going to give us the victory, that he is going to do what he has said that he would do. So Israel fought many battles, and Jericho was one of them. They also fought against Ai, but they lost that battle because there was sin in the camp. If you would like to read about that this week, it's in Joshua chapter 7. It's a great story. God had told the Israelites not to take anything, no silver, gold, brass, iron, or garments for themselves out of Jericho. All the spoils of this city were the first fruits and they belonged to God. Meaning like you take the spoils, these are mine because more victory is coming. Okay. He was giving them a promise. They had to have faith again. Elated by their victory over Jericho, they decided to send only two or 3,000 men to take Ai. Israel fought but lost the battle because there was sin. Unknown to Joshua, there was a man named Achan that had taken some forbidden spoils from Jericho and hidden them in the ground inside of his tent. He probably just kind of like dug up a hole and hid these and was like, okay, nobody will know about this. But God always knows. There's nothing hidden, no sin that is hidden from God. And sin always brings judgment from God. We've seen that all throughout our studies the last five weeks. There is judgment for sin. There's no sneaking around it. There's no way around it. God will judge sin. Sin brings the judgment of God. And the soldiers came back from the defeat at Ai wondering what was wrong. Achan's sin was exposed and he and his family were destroyed. And as I mentioned, you can read that whole story in depth in Joshua chapter 7. If we live in sin, we defeat God's purpose for our life. He wants us to be victorious. He doesn't want us to be bound by sin. He wants his people to be free. And we saw that last week because he went to great measures to free his people. But we are powerless to fight against sin without God's spirit dwelling within us. We find victory, power, joy, and peace only in the Holy Ghost. All right, so this, the, the Israelites had some victories. They had some losses. From city to city and village to village, the army of Israel fought to take the promised land. Joshua was a great leader, and he challenged them to press forward. Israel, by the power of God, subdued the land, and the land was divided so that the 12 tribes of Israel could have their own areas to dwell in. This took place in Joshua chapter 14. It was then, after a long life of service, that Joshua died, and there was no successor for Joshua. He was a great leader, and when he was gone, they were kind of left without a leader. We're going to talk more about that here in a moment. So um, the 12 tribes of Israel each got their own space of land, and they began establishing their lives in this promised land, and they were aware that they had been trying to get for all these years. They made it, right? Um, during this time, though, we're going to flip our chart 
Israel fell into the deepest of sins after Joshua's death because they lacked good, godly leadership. They were sort of scattered around in 12 regions in this promised land, and um, sin led to captivity. And so in their captivity, they cried out to God, and God raised up judges to lead Israel. And there's an entire book in the Old Testament dedicated to this topic, the judges, right? So the book of Judges tells us about these people. There were 15 judges in all, and one of them was a woman, and her name was Deborah. Two were priests named Eli and Samuel. Two were prophets. Deborah and Samuel were prophets. Um, There was other judges, but two others to name, Gideon and Samson, are well known for the way that the Lord used them very mightily. So in Judges chapter 17, verse 6, it summarizes the lack of spiritual direction Israel had. They were not in a good place. So they'd been delivered. They made it to their promised land. They had these these, um, regions of land divided out for them where they could be fruitful and multiply. And instead, they fell into sin. They had no good leadership. They ended up being led into captivity. And we hear this um, terrible summary in Judges chapter 17, verse 6. So let's turn there. Judges is going to be in the Old Testament. Joshua, Judges. All right. So chapter 17. In verse 6, in those days, there was no king in Israel, but every man did that which was right in his own eyes. That is in summary where Israel was at in this time. So there was no king, there was no leader, Joshua was gone, Moses was long gone. And they were kind of just left to themselves. They were supposed to be following the ways of the Lord. But as we have seen in our studies over the last five weeks, people are not usually very good at following the ways of the Lord. Right? We go after our flesh. We go after our desires. And as this scripture says, there was no king, but every man did that which was right in his own eyes. So sometimes we think we know the best way. We think we know it better than God sometimes. We think we can make good choices. But as we can see in the children of Israel, they were constantly making mistakes and straying away from the Lord, choosing for themselves idols and doing what they thought was right in their own eyes. So God used judges to rule until Israel chose its first king. And so we're going to flip over to the New Testament, to the book of Acts, and read a little bit about that. Acts chapter 13. Verse 
verses 19 and 20. So... All right, so Acts chapter 13, verses 19 and 20, says this. And when he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, he divided their land to them by lot. And after that, he gave unto them judges about the space of 450 years until Samuel the prophet. All right. So this is telling us in the New Testament, this is just telling us what happened to them, and it gives us a summary of um, this time period of the judges. So they had destroyed these nations. They had gone into the land of Canaan, the promised land. The lands were divided up to them by lot, And then God gave them judges, and for about 450 years, Israel was ruled by judges. That is how they um, were in relationship with God, was through these judges that were appointed. And then along came Samuel the prophet. So... We are going to flip over to the next chart, and we're going to learn about this prophet and how Israel gets a king. All right, so the prophet Samuel ruled over Israel under the direction of God, but Sometimes you just want to take the children of Israel and just smack them over the head. When you read through these Old Testament stories, you're like, oh, they're at it again. They're always murmuring, always complaining. They're never satisfied, right? Have you got that impression so far? Okay, well, it happens again. Murmuring and complaining and just not satisfied. They did not like this leadership that God had put over them. They wanted different leadership. They wanted to be like the other nations that they saw all around them, and they wanted a king. Well, they have a king, so why can't we have a king? They wanted that prestige of having a king. So Israel had a king, and that was God, but they didn't want an invisible king. They wanted a man that they could put on display before all of the nations. This desire to be like the surrounding nations reveals to us their hearts, right? The condition of their hearts. God wanted his will to be accomplished. He wanted to rule over them. But if a people insist on their own way, God will, at their insistence, give them their way. So we have to be careful on what we insist out of God because this is an example right here. They persisted, and then this is what happens to them. They got their king. Jesus gave us the perfect prayer in Luke 22, 42. He said, not my will, but thine be done. And that's the way that we should pray 
That's the way that the children of Israel should have prayed. That's a great pattern of prayer for all of humanity. The proper attitude and the proper placing of our heart and our spirit can only be maintained through prayer and through dedication to the will of God and to his word. Because like I said, we can get our own ideas. We can think it's right in our own eyes. But if it's not God's will, if it doesn't line up with his word, and if we're not cultivating that attitude and that spirit through prayer and through his word, then we're not going to ask for things. We're not going to pray for things that are truly God's will for us, right? The Bible calls that asking amiss. We're praying for things that are not in the will of God. So it's always important that we line ourselves with God's will because his ways are so much better than our ways. And what happens here is the Lord heard their murmurings and he heard their cry for a king. And so he gives them a king. And we're going to talk um, about three of these kings here. And this was when Israel was united. They demanded a king. And Israel, as a united kingdom, had three kings who reigned over them. Each of these kings reigned for 40 years. And their names are Saul, David, and Solomon. So Saul is the first one we're going to talk about. God chose the first king for Israel out of the tribe of Benjamin, and it was a man named Saul. Brother Sam, if I had to picture Saul, I would think that you might kind of be like him in some ways because the Bible says that he stood head and shoulders above all the rest. He was a tall man, a big man. He was courageous, and at the time he was chosen, he was also a humble man. And we can first read about Saul in 1 Samuel um, in chapter 9. You can read about his story and and a little bit about him in the beginning of his story. However, his character changed drastically. After he received the power and the authority of this new office, being the king, Saul forgot his place with God, and he became corrupt. It changed him. And Saul's later years were filled with many mistakes and with a lot of sin which overshadowed the previous good that he had done. Isn't that the way life goes? People are going to remember all of your mistakes and how things end um, over how you got started. So Saul's great pride prevented him from recognizing God's word through Samuel. Samuel was God's chosen spokesman. He was the prophet of God. He was the voice of speaking on behalf of the Lord. But Saul rejected this voice. He offered a sacrifice in the place of Samuel when he thought Samuel had waited too long to appear. He also rebelled against the words of Samuel to destroy everything when he went to battle against the Amalekites. And instead of obeying God's command, Saul brought back King Agag to live along with the cattle and sheep. Samuel rebuked Saul. He, he told him, Samuel, the prophet of God, he, he told him about it. 
And he said, behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to hearken than the fat of rams. You can read that in 1 Samuel 15. So obedience is more meaningful to God than sacrifices. God appreciates sacrificial offerings. He appreciates our worship and the sacrifice of praise. But he despises and he judges disobedience. He wants obedience. Obedience is better than sacrifice. God rejected Saul and his rebellious nature. And the Bible says that the spirit of the Lord departed from him. What a horrible line in scripture to know that Israel now has this king and the spirit of the Lord left him. God had chosen another king for Israel and his name was David. Saul became so jealous of David that he tried twice to kill him. He spent much of his time pursuing and chasing David, trying to take him down. And Saul's life ended tragically when he fell upon his own sword on the battlefield. Saul was a man who had so much potential, but he had pride. And he was wrecked by his own self-will, his own prideful spirit. You can read about his end in 1 Samuel 31. You know, people are often their own worst enemy. And some of the most Horrible troubles that we face in life actually come from within and not from the enemy without. The human soul can be so deceitful. The Bible tells us that the heart is deceitful. And we can think that we're right. We can think that our way is best and we can be prideful. But we can allow the enemy to enter in just through that little gate that we open from within ourselves. And the outside dangers and temptations of the world have no power until we surrender and we cooperate with them, right? And that's what we see in the life of Saul. So much potential. He was called and chosen of God, but he allowed his own pride and his own self-will to be his end. And his story ends very tragically. The second king of this United Kingdom of Israel is one of the best loved characters in scripture and it's probably someone familiar to us. His name was David. He was anointed king by the prophet Samuel when he was a very young man taking care of the family sheep. Possibly the highest compliment that could be said of David is that he was a man after God's own heart. This is something that we should all strive to be, a man after God's own heart. Although David sinned, his desire to please God and his tenderness of heart brought him to a place of repentance and remorse. So David's story is not a perfect one, but it's a story that we can all learn from. When David was a shepherd, just a boy, out caring for sheep, he fought off a bear and a lion that threatened his flock. The spirit of the Lord came upon David in a mighty way, and he quickly destroyed these dangerous animals. He was just a young boy. When he was sent out to see how his brothers were doing in the war against the Philistines, which was their greatest enemy at this time, David was enraged by the boasting of this great big old dude named Goliath. He was 
over in the Philistine army, and he was taunting Israel. Goliath was huge. He was over nine feet tall, and he was fully arrayed in a helmet of brass and this huge breastplate, this metal breastplate. This champion of the Philistines taunted the Israelites, and he told them, choose a man to come fight me. Although David was but a youth, he believed that God was going to help him. So because of David's faith, there's that word again, it's faith. God can use faith. Because of David's faith in God, he fought Goliath without the help of Israel. He did it on his own with the Lord. He used a sling, a stone, and the name of the Lord, and he knocked the giant to the ground. He then beheaded Goliath with the man's own sword. And if you want to refresh that story, that's in 1 Samuel 17. So this great victory by David brought him much attention and praise, which you can imagine enraged King Saul. So when David slew the giant, Saul was the king. And there was a great jealousy that raged in Saul's heart against David. Saul's greatest desire for the rest of his life was to destroy David because he was that jealous of him. Although David loved God and he wanted to please him, his life was not perfect. He committed a terrible sin after he became king. The armies of Israel were out fighting against Ammon, and David decided that he wasn't going to go fight. So in other words, he wasn't where he was supposed to be when he was supposed to be there. So he went out on the roof of his house, and he saw a beautiful young woman named Bathsheba, and she was bathing. Immediately, David desired after her, and he sent his messengers to go get her. David committed adultery with this woman. He sinned against God and his fellow man. And had David been with the armies of Israel where he was supposed to be, he would not have committed this sin. Then he realized he'd made a huge mistake. So in an attempt to cover his sin, David had Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, to be killed. So not only did he commit adultery, but he also organized a murder. Although David was called a man after God's own heart, God did not overlook this. God sent a prophet named Nathan with a very convicting message to get David's attention. This is important for us to, to read and to know that God is not a respecter of persons. He rebuked King David as he does anyone who sin. God does not tolerate sin, even in his anointed one. There is no such thing as pull in the kingdom of God. Everyone is equal, right? We all are on an equal playing field, and we all are responsible to stand before God for ourselves. David wanted to build a temple for God, but because he had been a man of war and he'd shed blood, God told him no. This privilege, however, was granted to one of David's sons, which brings us to our next king. King Solomon was the son of David, and he loved the Lord. And after he took his office as king, Solomon went to Gibeon and offered a thousand burnt offerings on the altar. Solomon might be a little extra here, right? You're going to see that. 
a thousand burnt offerings. Everything he did was extravagant. It was in Gibeon after this great offering that God appeared to Solomon in a dream and said, ask what I shall give thee. What a question. The God of the universe is telling this man that everything that he could desire is at his disposal. What do you want? I'll give it to you. And Solomon simply asked for one thing, wisdom. He wanted wisdom to lead God's people. His request showed that he was an unselfish, uh, he, had an, he had an unselfish desire to be a good leader for God's people. He wanted to lead them well. And as a result, God made Solomon the wisest king who ever lived. When we read and study his life, we see his wisdom on display. But it doesn't stop there. Matthew 6.33 says, But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. And we see that demonstrated in Solomon's life. His request reveals that his heart was to seek after God's kingdom and his righteousness. And then God gave him the things that he didn't even ask for. He gave him long life. He gave him great riches. Solomon lived a very extravagant and wealthy life. He gave him power over his enemies. God generously gave these things to Solomon. The word of the Lord is true. If we seek God's kingdom first, he will supply all of our needs. He will take care of us. Solomon is known for his wisdom. He is known for his extreme wealth. And unfortunately, he's also known for his wives because he had many of them, numbering them up in the hundreds. It's hard to keep up with one, right? He had a lot of wisdom, so he must have needed it. Sad to say, his wives were his downfall. They turned his heart from the one true God, and Solomon began chasing after other gods, false gods, idols. Even the most dedicated of people can fall from the grace of God if they do not die daily to their flesh. We have to get rid of this flesh, and we have to die daily to it every day. It's a struggle. Um, perhaps the greatest accomplishment of Solomon's reign was the temple which he built at Jerusalem. You can read about that in 1 Kings chapter 5. He built the temple after the pattern the Lord had given to David. The construction took seven years. It was a big to-do. The temple included the holy place and the holy of holies like the tabernacle had that we talked about last week. So it was built much the same way that God had instructed them to build the tabernacle. Remember I told you the tabernacle was like a portable place of worship in the desert. And then once they were established, they built the temple. During the very first service in the temple, the presence of God was so strong that a thick cloud filled the temple. Solomon, who was standing before the Lord in prayer, ended up on his knees before God, the Holy One of Israel. Humble submission and worship in the house of the Lord will bring his presence. Because of Solomon's many sins and his walking away from the plan of God, the United Kingdom of Israel was divided after his reign. 
The spiritually depraved kingdom then separated and became two kingdoms, Israel and Judah, each one having its own king. So those are the three kings of Israel. And now that leads us to the divided kingdom. Solomon's son, his name was Rehoboam, and he liked taxes. And so he started taxing the people even more than Solomon had. And the people were demanding reforms. They were demanding change. But he didn't want to listen, and he took the counsel of these young advisors instead of the older and more experienced men. And the result was a political revolt. The kingdom was divided into north and south, Israel and Judah. So we're going to talk for a moment here about the kingdom of Israel. The northern kingdom consisted of 10 tribes and was known as the kingdom of Israel. Its capital was Samaria, and the first king was Jeroboam. In an effort to keep the tribes from returning to Jerusalem, Jeroboam set up competing altars at Dan and Bethel. And because of these altars, idolatry was widespread in the northern kingdom. They began worshiping all sorts of idols. Israel had a total of 19 kings, and all of them were wicked. So this is not a good path for the nation of Israel to be on. God in his mercy sent many prophets to warn Israel of judgment. Two of those notable prophets were Elijah and Elisha, mighty men of God. All of their prophecies were fulfilled in their lifetime. The people refused to repent, however, and the judgment of God came. Israel fell and the people were taken away captive by Assyria in 722 BC. So two of the kings of Israel were Ahab and Jehu. Ahab and his wife Jezebel were known to be extremely wicked. They served a false god named Baal, and their wickedness ranged from killing the prophets of God to the murder of a man named Naboth simply because they wanted his land. So these people that had come into leadership in the kingdom of Israel were very, very wicked. Jehu was a king in Israel who executed righteousness for a period of time. His reign, however, was not righteous in its entirety because he was unwilling to completely depart from the sins of Jeroboam. So they just wouldn't get it all together, in other words. And in the kingdom of Judah, the southern kingdom, there were only two tribes, Judah and Benjamin. And this was known as the kingdom of Judah. The first king of Judah was Rehoboam, and the capital city was Jerusalem. Judah had 19 kings and one queen. Unlike the kingdom of Israel, Judah did have some good folks. Um, he, they had some righteous kings such as Asa, Jehoshaphat, Jotham, Hezekiah, and Josiah. Although they had many others who were evil and who worshipped idols. The prophets warned Judah of the judgment of God and his wrath that would surely come unless they would repent. God sent more prophets, such as Isaiah and Jeremiah, 
He sent them to the nation of Judah with a message of impending judgment. However, Judah refused to repent. And in 606 BC, they were carried into captivity by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. And this captivity lasted for 70 years. Judgment is soon to come on this world. It's promised to us. And we see in scripture when, when God tells us that judgment is coming, it comes. Those who have not served God will be carried off into captivity for all of eternity. So it's important that we align ourselves with the word of God, that we respond to his grace, that we keep ourselves from straying away and worshiping the things of this world. We see that it didn't end well for the children of Israel. All right, so that is, oh, here we are, the divided kingdom. So the days of Israel and Judah were a period of time when the people were worshiping their own gods, and they, they didn't want to worship the Lord. They didn't want to follow after his word. So God sent prophets to prophesy throughout the reign of the kings of Israel and Judah. Some of the kings would listen to the prophets, but the majority of them did not. Elijah is one of those prophets that we're going to talk about here for just a moment. Elijah was a prophet in Israel sent by God to prophesy against that wicked king Ahab and his Zidonian wife Jezebel that I just mentioned to you. The Zidonians worshipped this god called Baal. And Ahab followed his wife because that's what Ahab did. He followed Jezebel. When Jezebel spoke, everybody listened, even Ahab. And Ahab followed after his wife's idolatry and built an altar to Baal in Israel's capital, Samaria. Well, this set the stage for a big contest between the God of Elijah and the God of Jezebel. Elijah threw down the gauntlet and he said to the Baal worshipers, call on the name of your gods and I will call on the name of the Lord. And the God that answers by fire, let him be God. So the prophets of Baal called on the name of Baal from morning until noon. They cried out, oh, Baal, hear us. But there was no voice. Baal didn't answer them because he's not the true living God. They leaped up on the altar which was made and they cried out and they cut themselves with knives until blood gushed out of them trying to get the attention of Baal. It's exactly what I think, Brother Sam. <laughs> Guess what? There was no response, no answer from Baal. So now it's Elijah's turn. So Elijah ordered 12 barrels of water to be poured all over the wood on this altar before he prayed. And he was going to call down fire from heaven. You know that fire and water don't mix very well. So he ordered all this water to go on this wood. And then he said, God's going to do it. After a brief prayer of faith, he didn't scream and cry for hours. He didn't jump up there. He didn't cut himself. God responded to Elijah's prayer with a roaring fire, and he completely consumed all of this wet wood. The God of Elijah had proven himself to be the one true God, and the prophets of Baal were destroyed. Another prophet who, who spoke words from God is Elisha. Elisha succeeded Elijah as the chief prophet of Israel after Elijah was carried into heaven by a whirlwind. So there was a man named Naaman who was captain of the Syrian army. 
and he had a servant girl who was from Israel. Naaman also happened to be a leper. He was very sick with leprosy. One day, his servant girl said, Would God, my Lord, were with the prophet that is in Samaria, for he would recover him of his leprosy. So she's telling him, there's a prophet, and he can help you. And so Naaman sent word to have Elisha come, but Elisha sent a messenger to tell him, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times. Thy flesh shall come again to thee, and thou shalt be clean. Well, Naaman wasn't too fond of this. You know, he's an important guy, going washing in the dirty river. The guy can't even come talk to him. He sends a messenger, but reluctantly he obeys. And to his surprise, he was healed. Even though Naaman did not initially want to follow the prophet's instructions, by doing so, God healed him. And even though Naaman was a Syrian, God still healed him with the result that the God of Israel received the glory. So there's another prophet in the Old Testament here that we're going to talk about briefly, Isaiah. He prophesied of the Savior. If you read the book of Isaiah... It contains numerous prophecies of the coming of the Messiah, the Savior, the one who would come to save them from their sins. Isaiah prophesied the Messiah would be born of a virgin, which he was, that he would be called Emmanuel or God with us, that he would perform miracles, and he would be beaten and crucified with thieves, and he would be buried in a rich man's tomb. And all of these prophecies in Isaiah came true in the life of Jesus. Of the many prophecies about Jesus, one that continues to bless people today is found in Isaiah 35. It says, The eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap as a heart, and the tongue of the dumb sing. For in the wilderness shall waters break out, and streams in the desert. Jesus performed miracles during the time he walked on earth, and he continues to do it today. Isaiah 53 is another prophecy that refers to the darkest period of Jesus' life, the days after his arrest and leading up to his crucifixion. Even in a prophecy of Jesus' dark hour, Isaiah gave hope to people who are broken and in need of healing. Isaiah 53 and 5 states, But he was wounded, for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. Amen. We are almost done, but I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to do one more chart tonight, and then we're going to finish um, with chart seven next week. That's all right. All right, so we're going to talk about the exile. So while Israel and Judah were in captivity in Assyria and Babylon, remember I told you that they were led off into captivity. Once again, they're led off, um, and they're, they're not a free nation. So God sent them prophets to communicate his word. The, prom- the promises that God had made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were still in effect even if the children of Israel were not able to see the blessing of God at that time in their life. God was preserving a remnant of his people to ensure the promises he made would be fulfilled. 
God's word cannot return void. It will happen. So he was preserving these people to fulfill all of his promises that he had made all the way back to these men of old. So Ezekiel was one of these men that prophesied. He prophesied during the Babylonian captivity. God gave him very vivid examples of future events and showed him wondrous visions. God can speak to us through visions. He spoke to Ezekiel through visions. So he talked to um, Ezekiel. The Spirit of God moved on him and told him of a promise that wouldn't be fulfilled for almost 600 years. But Ezekiel recorded the words. And in chapter 11, verses 19 and 20, he said this, And I will give them one heart, and I will put a new spirit within you. And I will take the stony heart out of their flesh and will give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes and keep mine ordinances and do them. And they shall be my people and I will be their God. Ezekiel was prophesying about the spirit that was going to come and change our hearts and live within us. In Ezekiel 37, God gave him another prophecy that pertains to new life. Ezekiel was carried by the Spirit of the Lord to a valley full of dry bones. Probably looks something like this on the chart, just dry old bones. And God asked him this question, can these bones live? Ezekiel responded, oh Lord, God, thou knowest. So God asked Ezekiel to prophesy or speak to the bones. And God sent life into the bones. Through this experience, God taught Ezekiel that despite the fact that Judah and Israel was divided and conquered and captured, that one day he was going to bring them all together and restore and reunify the Jewish people. Daniel was another prophet, and he prophesied during Israel's exile in Babylon. As with Joseph, Daniel had a gift that caused him to rise in prominence in the Babylonian government. Although he was in the king's favor for a time, he was very devoted to God, and this brought persecution upon him because he refused to stop praying to the God of Israel. And despite being cast into a den of lions for his prayer life, Daniel escaped unscathed, and he went on to prophesy of events such as the rise and fall of kingdoms and empires, as well as he prophesied about many end time events which have yet to come to pass. But we might just see them come to pass in our time. Daniel's old words. His prophecies are also mentioned in the Gospels of Matthew and Mark in the New Testament. Esther was a Jewish woman who lived in Persia sometime after the destruction of Jerusalem. She rose through the ranks from being a servant to being the queen. Haman, one of the king's chief servants, and he was an enemy of the Jewish people, plotted the destruction of Esther and the Jews. After Israel, or I'm sorry, after Esther called for prayer and fasting, God intervened and reversed Haman's plot and ended in Haman's own death. He turned it right against him. The message of the book of Esther shows us that God's saving grace is for all who follow him. 
And so we've been on this journey with the children of Israel tonight. They, re they went into their promised land and they chose to do things their own way. And because of that, we see sin entering the camp. We see the judgment of God. We see that they ended up divided people and we see that they ended up living under wicked rulers and leaders. And God is sending them voices. He's sending them prophets. He's sending them people to warn them and to draw them back in. Sometimes they heeded the voice. Sometimes they rejected it. But they're getting ready to make a return. All right? And so we are going to pick up here next week. This will just be one more chart. Um, and if you want to bring this paper back next week, you can fill in those last few blanks. And then we will dive into the New Testament. So that is exciting. We have made our way through the Old Testament, and we're going to be taking a look at the New Testament. Do we have any questions? No? All right, and so we're going to close out in prayer and let everybody be dismissed. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you, God, that you've shown us your faithfulness. Even when we, like the children of Israel, have not been faithful, you are a faithful God. You are faithful to guide us and direct us. You're faithful to send us a voice of correction when we have gone astray. You're faithful to love us even when we're undeserving. We thank you, Lord, for your great faithfulness, Lord. And I pray that you would help us to learn from this scripture. Help us to digest it, God, to understand it, God. I pray that this week you would help us to get in the word and to understand what we read. God, give us great wisdom and understanding as you gave to Solomon, Lord. We're asking you for wisdom. We're asking you for understanding, God, that we might be good students of your word and that we might grow in knowledge. Lord, I pray that you would bless the Thompsons this week, bless their home and bless their family. Give Brother Sam strength and body, Lord, to work as you've given him this great blessing that you've given him on his job. In the name of Jesus, we pray these things. Amen.